Hello, everyone. For this episode of Healing the Nations podcast, we have James Standish, a Seventh Avenue attorney who graduated from Georgetown University, who served the Seventh Avenue Church as a representative both to the federal government and the United Nations. Because of a recording error, we do not have our usual introductions. We apologize for the inconvenience. The first question I asked Mr. Standish is why is there a political divide in the church? He began to answer, pointing out that the church initially was countercultural to mainstream norms as a sectarian movement. He would continue on stating, We lived out our faith in a community that operated in a very different way than society in general. There's a beautiful document that I read not too long ago by the Historical Society uh, about the early uh, time of Adventist settlement in Battle Creek, Michigan. And what they said in that document was early Adventists lived in a way that was very radical. Black Adventists and white Adventists had each other over to each other's homes, and they lived in this integrated community that was completely and utterly uh, out of the norm for the times. This is a radical experiment. We have this radical um, radical perspective on, on humanity, on the gospel, on our understanding of prophecy, and how we lived it out, right? But then as time went on, we began to integrate. We became more respectable, we became more mainstream, and we became to act like the society in which we lived. Eventually, we get to the point where we have completely and utterly integrated our views on race with the views of society to the point that the general conference cafeteria, the cafeteria at our church's global headquarters is segregated. Blacks cannot eat there. In addition, we have a terrible case where a, uh, a black Seventh-day Adventist came to the Washington Adventist hospital, the sanitarium, and was refused treatment because they did not take black patients. And of course, there's lots of cases uh, in, in the area, in this area where I live, where blacks were not welcomed into local churches. They were told to go to black churches. So we started off this radically different organization, this radically different culture. But by the time you get to the 1950s, well, before the 1950s, but by the time you get to the 1950s, we look exactly like the people we live next door to, right? We have assimilated and we've taken on those values. And even worse, Peter, and this is what you see in religious societies, I think generally, we start to confuse the compromises that we've made to be part of our society with our principles. And so eventually the United States gets away from segregation, but we're at the end of that. We integrate our institutions after the state integrates it. In other words, we go from being at the absolute forefront on this issue to lagging behind. Well, why is that? It's because we have become like our society and confused our compromise with our principles. I think today is no different. We as Seventh-day Adventists do not do a very good job at transcending our demographics. 
our political perspectives are really no different than other people similarly situated in our demographic group. And that goes by our race, our income, our education level. If you can tell me your race, income level, uh, your education level, and where you live, you're basically your demographics, and you're a Seventh-day Adventist, I have a pretty good idea of what your politics are going to be. It doesn't seem to make much difference that we're Seventh-day Adventists. And what you see is that Seventh-day Adventists, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, justify their beliefs, their political beliefs, as being supported by their religion. So this is what I believe is happening. We are seeing our faith through our politics, not our politics through our faith. Our demographic identity is much more important to us than our faith commitment. So as we've seen uh, the Democrats and Republicans in the United States veer off and the left become more left and the right become more right, and then the, the Republican Party sort of transform from being uh, the party of free trade and so forth to, to a different sort of thing, um, we've just seen Adventists go with the parties. As the parties have become further apart, as the politics has become more toxic, as the talking points have become sharper, as the agreement and compromise in society has become uh, harder and harder to find, so it is with Adventists. And so we see people uh, arguing, uh, you know, on Facebook and uh, and in uh, society, you know, and even even in churches, uh, with people, uh, uh, you know, being very very uh, polarized, and um, and that's not a surprise because. Really, our politics have, have become a preeminent identity that we see our faith through rather than vice versa. Now, you posted a video on your social media appealing to church members in, in regards to the attack on the Capitol. What compelled you to do this? Well, you know, I uh, happen to live not that far from the Capitol, about 20 minutes, I suppose, and I work down there a lot. So I'm very familiar with the whole, the whole milieu. And uh, I, I know Adventists who work in that area, um, you know, good people doing their very, very best. And when I watched the riot at the Capitol, and, and you know, even terms now are politicized. Some people call it an insurrection. Some people call it a riot. Some people call it a protest. I, whatever it is, it's six and one half dozen the other. The people ransacking the Capitol and calling out for the killing of Nancy Pelosi and other people. I just figured that the entire country would see that for what it is, which is objectively an attack on democracy. Irrespective of whether we're Republicans or Democrats, they really, uh, the people who were threatened, including Mike Pence, is a, you know, he's a Republican. Uh, it's irrespective. And what I was shocked by, and maybe I shouldn't have been, but was to see people uh, sort of, downplaying it, explaining it away, sort of doing the what was now termed whataboutism. Uh, you know, well, that's bad, but what about what the Democrats did and so forth? And I found that very troubling. I found it very troubling because there's a point at which behavior cannot simply be seen through partisan, you know, goggles. 
and I'm not a party guy. I'm an independent, and I'm an independent because I don't fit into political parties, and, and I don't fit in political parties, I think, at least I try, because I put my faith before my political leanings, right? And if you take your faith through uh, seriously, you, I think for most of us will realize, hey, uh, neither of these parties is reflecting the views of Jesus Christ or the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Uh, it's just not. They're not organized to do that. So I'm an independent, but nonetheless, the thing that, that worries me, Peter, and I think all of us should be worried about is when something that incredible happens, where you have people smashing down the Capitol doors and, and ransacking offices and calling for the death of the vice president and the Speaker of the House and so forth, and yet still we have Seventh-day Adventists standing up and saying, Oh, well, you know, it uh, wasn't that bad. The Democrats do it too, blah, 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 blah. To me, that is just intolerable because it indicates that we have completely and utterly uh, subsumed our moral compass to our party affiliation. In addition, the reason that people were downplaying this or excusing it or doing the whataboutism and so forth is that they believed the objective falsehood upon which the attack was based. And I say objective falsehood not because I believe, you know, whenever you say that, people say, oh, you're just a, a sucker for the mainstream media. You're, you're, you're based in this. I'll tell you, Peter, I, I'm fortunate that I get to consume a lot of uh, media from a lot of different perspectives, including um, my favorite, which is C-SPAN, where you just hear from the people who, who actually uh, are doing the talking. And the evidence was so overwhelming that the basis of the attack was, was, was based on an inaccuracy. If you just listen to Republicans, forget Democrats, just listen to Republicans, overwhelmingly, they were saying people in, in positions of power and credibility, people who had every reason to call things against uh, the Democrats, were saying the election was free, it was fair, that the count was accurate, and that there was no problem with the election that was uh, broad and systemic enough that would make any difference to the outcome. And that includes officials in Georgia, as we know. It includes the, the, the United States Attorney General, it includes the head of cybersecurity for the United States. It includes the, the uh, speaker, the, the, the leader of the uh, Senate, uh, the Republicans in the Senate. It includes many, many people, people who had every reason uh, to find one way and not the other. And I guess what, what, what it got to me was how easily Adventists lose touch with reality because reality doesn't mesh with their political or our political desires, right? And I think that this is a real, this is a really a troubling time because we used to be called ourselves the people of truth, right? If we lose touch with what is true because our political goggles are blinding us, then what's left? What's left? We've just been dragged down a, a path because our political presuppositions want it. 
Now, I want to be clear, Peter, because whenever you say something like this, people say, aha, uh, we're talking to a Democrat. I am not a Democrat. I understand very clearly that there are problems with the Democratic Party. I am pro-life because early Christians were pro-life. I think the Bible teaches pro-life, and I think the the, the life of, of human beings uh, uh, is a precious gift from God, and every human being is, is created in the image of God, and no one has the right to take that life. Uh, and I, I obviously, as, as I mentioned, I'm very pro-religious freedom and other things uh, that do not sit very well within today's Democratic Party. Uh, uh, and I was very troubled by the uh, not by the, the calls for racial justice. I support that 100%. What I don't support was the violence that happened in the United States uh, last summer. Um, that was troubling. I think most of us who, who um, uh, you know, who care about uh, basic human rights and decency are troubled when we see people's businesses being ransacked and, and, and cars set on fire and all those sorts of things. That's not acceptable. It's not excusable. Uh, and I, I, I don't want to suggest that it is. But when we see, I, you know, I posted on that when, when that happened and got some pushback and, you know, I'm, I'm OK. I don't mind to, to push back. But, but when we see the capital of the United States ransacked and we still have Adventists who are spreading falsehoods and refusing to see reality that's objectively there. I think that's a problem. I think it's a big problem. Now, there are some quarters of conservative Adventism that are very concerned that the current administration is a threat to religious liberty. What is your thoughts on that? Well, I would hope that that would be a concern not among, quote, conservative Adventisms, but by all Adventists, uh, because we have to guard our religious freedom. Absolutely. And the Republicans have their set of uh, concerns, but you know the, the truth is that they that generally uh, they were in some ways better on religious freedom than the previous administration, the Democratic administration, and we do have to watch out for it. Uh, there are particular issues, uh, particularly the interplay between religious freedom and uh, LGBTIQ plus concerns that that it is complex, right? And that we need to make sure that we don't find that religious freedom is treated as a second-class right. And we are in danger of that. That's, that's objectively uh, a problem. Uh, it's, it's a concern. I think people have every right to be worried about it. And, you know, um, and, and I am too. Uh, I'm I'm worried about it. Uh, It's something that that absolutely uh, concerns me. And, you know, sometimes I I think I think we often find ourselves in a in thinking that if there's a fork in the path and you've got option A and option B, one of them is right and one of them is wrong. But sometimes you get option A and option B and both of them are wrong, but in different ways, if that makes sense. And I think that that's the reality uh, that we face today, I don't want my faith co-opted and misused to to justify a sort of a virulent way of looking at the world and others and so forth. But on the converse side of it, I don't want my faith subsumed to other people's 
uh, uh, rights or or agendas or or um, or interests. And I think that the making sure that we have that balance of standing up on on issues is, is absolutely critical. Yes, absolutely. Is the deplatforming of certain conservative luminaries and social media a threat to our First Amendment rights, and could it bleed over to our ministries and social media as well? Yeah, it's, it's actually an interesting question. And if you're not concerned about the deplatforming of people, uh, you know, you're not really aware of how we communicate as a society now. I've actually uh, given a little bit of thought to this and, and talked to some other. Adventist uh, lawyers who are familiar with, with how we've regulated uh, public spaces in the past, we understand that the Facebook and Twitter and and um, YouTube and Google and so forth, um, they are private companies. And as such, private companies can censor the, the, the content that they, that, they, um, that, they, that they carry as a general rule of thumb. But because of the way the internet has developed, they're really more than private companies and they have monopolistic um, status or very close to it. In the old days, you know, if you go back to when the, when the constitution was, was framed and the, and the bill of rights was adopted, when we said freedom of speech, you could go and make your point either through flyers or, you know, a speech in the, in the public square literally in the public square. Well, our public square today is not going out into the park and making a speech or handing out some flyers. The country's too big. That's not where people are at. That's not where people go to discuss things. It really is the, um, uh, it, 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 it really is in the, the social media space. So when we see people getting deplatformed, being uh, kicked off those, it really does raise very serious questions. Now, obviously, if somebody is advocating imminent violence, that's one thing. If, on the other hand, people are advocating ideas that are not acceptable to the social media platform, that's, that's really another thing. And I, I saw an interesting thing from Snopes, you know, the, the, the quote fact-checking outfit, that they said that... Uh, that creationism, creationism, people who believe in that God created the earth and that each human being is a is a creation uh, made in the image of God. Uh, people like me, essentially, <laughs> are dangerous because we believe in a quote unscientific conspiracy theory. <laughs> so I guess you know I read that and I said, okay, I you know you can see where the end of, where the end this is going. Sooner or later, people who hold biblical views on sexuality people who hold biblical views on on uh, marriage people who hold b- biblical views on on the sanctity of life people who hold the biblical views on creation well we, we are vulnerable to being deplatformed and thereby marginalized and thereby silent and ridiculed there's no doubt that that is a problem my suggestion and it's a it's a modest one and not completely formed but is to treat social media and media companies in in a way like we taught that in the way that the law treated uh networks back when cbs nbc abc uh were the sort of three networks and they had a fairness doctrine imposed on them uh where that they where they had to be balanced or at least they 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 were supposed to be because we understood that by giving them these licenses 
to the airways of the country that it gave them a voice that was disproportionate. And so therefore we had to make sure just for the health of our democracy and our society, that there was some balance there and equal time, if you like. And I think we really need something like that uh, for these um, mega media companies, because they essentially have going over the, uh, by using the internet, which is, you know, has a, has a backbone across the country, um, a similar sort of role to the networks uh, back in the day. It's not a simple thing. It's not an easy, it's not an easy thing to figure out how best to roll. If you're not troubled by the deplatforming, I just don't think you're thinking things very carefully through because, you know, a healthy, robust, both religious and political culture has free speech at its core. And when you see uh, speech going, not, uh, you know, being marginalized at that level, I, yeah, I think it's troubling. Is there a difference between the Seventh Avenue's position on religious liberty and, and the position of the evangelical religious right? You know, I, there is. And I, I should say, and I think it's really important to keep this in mind, we use terms like the evangelical religious right. The truth is, there isn't a the there. There is a multitude, right? So I have very good friends who are uh, evangelical, who are involved in religious freedom, uh, who are very thoughtful, very um, nuanced, very careful. And then I have friends who are really... Uh, you know, um, uh, they're not really for religious freedom per se. They're really for a, a sort of form of religious supremacy, right? And there's a difference there, and it's important. Um, it's one thing to say, I want the right to uh, operate uh, and speak and uh, act according to my faith. It's quite another when your ideas of religious freedom become... Uh, sort of uh, virulent in the sense of there's religious freedom for me and mine, but not for you and yours. And that is certainly a danger, right? Uh, we want religious freedom to be a shield for all, uh, not a sword for anyone. Right? And and I, I understand, look, you can frame it. We're all clever enough to frame things uh in a way that, that makes other people's positions seem uh, problematic. But I think that we, we've seen that play out a little bit, where one of the rallies that happened after the election, uh, where you had uh, some evangelical luminaries and conservative or right-wing uh, political figures, mainly from, frankly, from the fringes of the party, uh, getting up there and, and really conflating uh, religion with support for a particular president that's very troubling to me. Uh, it's, and evangelical leaders saying that God has told them that this uh, particular candidate is the one to to win the election, and and any and you know the whole religious fervor around a like any political candidate, a very fallen man, uh, struck me as as really uh, very uh, problematic. And uh, so I so yes, there is a difference. The difference comes, I think, at its core, that Seventh-day Adventists under, have a, a, a prophetic understanding. We have a view of the United States where it is 
we do see it as a wonderful, unique, amazing country, but we also see it as a country that can be a threat to freedom, not just a, a, uh, a voice for it. And I think that we also have a different perspective uh, because even within Christianity, we're a minority within a minority, and we understand what it's like to be uh, uh, under threat, not just from secularists, and we certainly understand that from our experience under communism in the Eastern Bloc and, and, and in other communist nations, uh, but we also understand what it's like to be under threat from fellow Christians. And that should make us sensitive and careful, right? Yes, indeed. There are some Seventh-day Adventists that believe that those that are Christian nationalists, that are advocates for legislating morality, are Bible-believing Christians that we should ally ourselves to, like the WCTU during the late 19th century, during the Temperance Crusade. How valid is that argument? You know, it's, it's actually an excellent um, perspective to think through very carefully, right? And it, like, like a lot of historical analogies, sometimes you can, you can uh, get valuable insights, but sometimes you can over-apply them as well. So let's talk about legislating morality. Uh, we start off by saying that every law that is made is based on a moral sense, right? We try to do what's right. Even tax laws have a moral basis to them because we say, how much money can can we redistribute through the system, which is a part of it? Who should contribute what to which? And that has a moral basis. And there's no problem with legislating morality in the sense of, uh, we you know we outlaw murder. Well, that's, that's an immoral act. The question is, when do we get to a limit of legislating morality? Uh, and I used to have a, have a little rule of thumb, and that is all laws should be moral, but not all morality should be law. It goes off the tongue easily, but debating where the limit should be is complex. I think that there are issues where we can join together with, uh, with a wide variety of people, just like we did during the temperance movement. And if you read Ellen White's writings, on it, they're very, very strong and very much in favor of being engaged in the public square. I see that as, as non-problematic. Uh, in fact, it can be very positive. And I've worked in coalitions on a variety of issues, and that's how you get things uh, accomplished. You can't, you know, there's a thought that, that one uh, relatively small group is going to change uh, the way things are done uh, in, in a country this large and diverse is is wrong and and is you know essentially uh, not in line with, with with how democracy works. The question is whether we align ourselves on specific issues where our interests align, or whether we subject our broad view of public policy to another set of perspectives. That is why. I've always felt very comfortable with the, with the Adventist Church having our own uh, religious liberty ministry, our own voice, doing things our own way. Yes, joining together with others where we have commonality, no problem at all with that, but doing it in a way that has the lines and the understanding that we have. I think Adventists have something to give, and that includes the perspective that there's limits to what we can accomplish through the government, there's limits to what we should want to accomplish through the government, 
and understanding the danger of mixing religion and politics together and how that can be a, a beautiful thing that accomplishes wonderful things like the abolition of slavery and the civil rights laws. And we can go through and give many other examples. And it can also accomplish very toxic things, particularly the suppression or repression of people who are not Christians or repression or suppression of people who are outside the mainstream of Christianity. We have to be very, very, very careful. As the Bible uh, tells us, uh, you know, be uh, wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And there's very few areas where we need to apply uh, subtlety, thought, careful analysis more thoroughly than to this area of the intersection of religion and public life, law and public life. And I, I want to say, Adventists, just like everybody else in society, we like to use little sort of, um, I don't know, shorthand. We support separation of church and state. Well, of course we do, but what does that mean, right? Or, uh, you know, we don't want to uh, legislate morality. Well, well, we do, but we don't, right? It, it's more complicated than slogans. You really have to think through the issues very carefully, and sometimes the details really matter when you're looking at, at proposals. Is Christian nationalism compatible with Adventism? You know, I, I pass a, a home uh, every day when I'm taking my kids to school. I take my kids over an hour from my house to school right now because the school is open there. It's uh, out in uh, uh, the school they go to is out near Hagerstown. And I pass a home that has something that I find very troubling. And I'll explain it to you because I think it's a great metaphor for the problem with Christian nationalism. The home has a flagpole, and at the top of that flagpole is the United States flag. I've got no problem with that. I've flown a U.S. flag outside my house for many years, um, and uh, I, uh, I love the United States. The United States has been a very, very uh, amazing country to me and my family, and and I I think it's 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 an absolutely astonishingly wonderful place. Underneath the American flag, that home flies a Christian flag. You know the flag that you see in churches, the white flag with the blue uh, square and the red cross, right? Uh, it's a flag that's common in in American Protestant churches. And when I pass that home, I think two things. First of all, I'm glad the guy loves the country, and I'm glad he loves Jesus. And I've got no problem with him flying the flags, but it strikes me that the order of the flags is mixed up. I don't think Jesus comes second to anyone. You understand what I'm saying, Peter? Oh, yes, indeed. If you're going to have two flags, and you're going to have the Christian flag and the American flag, the Christian flag should be on top. And this is the problem that I have with Christian nationalism. It's subverting Christianity to support a national state rather than putting the principles of God so far above any given country that the two are almost, uh, you know, you're talking about a whole different plane. And as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, we have brothers and sisters in every country of the world. They, 
you know, I, I, I don't think you know this, Peter, but I have a son who is from China. Uh, there are over 400,000 Adventists in China. That, that's that's, that's, a, that's uh, a little bit hard to, to quantify because of the Chinese, the situation in China. But you name almost any country. I, I mentioned uh, earlier uh, a story uh, about uh, an Adventist who is Iranian. Uh, you get any country that you think of, there are Seventh-day Adventist Christians there, brothers and sisters in Christ. We have to keep a very globalist perspective because God's church is global, right? We love our country. I love America. I honor America. I thank America for what it is. But America is not the church, and it's much smaller than the body of Christ. And this idea that the United States should be uh, its so mixed up, so uh, sort of whipped together with our religion that the two things can't be separated, no! You know, our faith is, is completely supersedes uh, any kind of national identity. And secondly, we have to understand that the United States is a very complex country with people from a wide variety of faith groups and a wide variety of Christian traditions, right? There's a very big difference between being a Mormon and being a, a Mennonite. They're two different traditions, or, or being a, a conservative a Roman Catholic and being a liberal a Presbyterian, a wide variety of things. And the United States, yes, our laws should be moral. And yes, Christians have every right to, to talk about the morality that, that drives us and to talk about this in, in, the, in the public square on issues like the right to life is, is, is one that I mentioned that I'm personally very passionate about because I believe in human rights and I believe that human rights begin with the right to life. But it doesn't mean that the state becomes a sort of surrogate for the church and the church is a surrogate for the state. These are two separate things. The country has to be broad enough and big enough that uh, people from every faith tradition and no faith tradition can live happily, can live uh, full lives and not be interfered or have their, their, their religious freedom uh, and their religious views dictated uh, by the government. This is a, a complicated uh, area. The Christian nationalism as an idea, as a conflation of faith and, and nationalism together, uh, I think is a very dangerous thing, and a, more incidentally, more dangerous for the church than it is for the for the country, and it is not something that that I think that we can endorse. And I think it's something that we have to really ensure, work very hard to ensure, is not uh, integrated into our culture, our church culture. Have you seen more racism expressed among church members in the last four years because of more Adventists accepting Christian nationalism here in the United States? You know, it, it, that's a good question. I I don't I, I don't know if I could say that I have. I think that uh, and and that could be because of where I live. You know, this last year has been a really weird year in the sense that I, you know, obviously haven't traveled very much for the last 12 months. And, um, and, and I haven't been to church very much for the last 12 months. Uh, you know, everything's been virtual. And so really, I'm not, I'm not sure I've seen that. Uh, I know there's been a lot of discussion about race, racial equity, um, and uh, race relations. I'm not sure. I think, you know, very good. This is a complicated area, uh, and we want to create a society where 
everyone is treated justly, fairly, uh, with dignity, right? That's our goal. And that, that's being quoted who Adventists are from, from our start. As I, we lost sight of it, but let's get that back. I mean, absolutely. I, I will say this much. I have felt very, very uncomfortable on multiple occasions with public pronouncements that I think were very damaging to race relations, right? Didn't show adequate sensitivity or uh, not even sensitivity, adequate respect for people. I I think of uh, uh, statements that were made that really demeaned uh, Mexican immigrants, for example. That makes me very, very unhappy. I completely disagreed with those statements. Uh, I disagreed with um, uh, some of the statements made that that exacerbated racial tensions in America rather than calming them down and, and, and trying to find common ground. I don't know if that's because of Christian nationalism per se or nationalism or just a flat out uh, sort of appealing to people's prejudice, but whatever it is, uh, it's certainly uh, the, the year that we lived through was a traumatic year and a year that I think all of us can look back on and say, you know, what could have been done that was just much better than what we went through where a terrible things happened, um, whether it's the, the killing of, uh, uh, of George Floyd or uh, some of the other uh, deaths that, that occurred, uh, Breonna Taylor and so forth. How do we get to a point where uh, African-American uh, Americans, uh, you know, uh, are not, killed uh when they're unarmed uh and um you know how do we get to a society where that's just that that just ends uh these are because that surely all of us are opposed to that there's nothing positive or good we can try to explain it away and say well these people this or that person that da, 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 da. ultimately human beings are killed that didn't have to be killed and, and shouldn't have been killed. And that is something that we need to, uh, we really need as a society to do a much better job of uh, dealing, uh, you know, preventing, because ultimately that's, that's the job of society, uh, you know, protect uh, our citizens. That's it. And it doesn't matter, you know, uh, what their background is, obviously. And that we got to a point where, where we had, a terrible killings that we all knew about, we all saw about, we all saw it, and they were handled in a way uh, at the highest levels to inflame racial tensions instead of dealing with the substantive issue, I think is, is, is really uh, not appropriate and not acceptable. Has our prophetic interpretation changed as members embrace more of a friendly attitude towards evangelical Christian theology? I think that our prophetic understanding has not changed officially, but I think it has been de-emphasized and compromised fairly broadly in our church. Uh, We've sort of went through a period where people were tired of being essentially freaked out by our our (laughs) prophetic understanding, and so we stopped talking about it, or we talked about it in a different way, or we de-emphasized, at least in in many churches. It's a big church, and so, you know, results may vary. But that's what I've noticed. And I I remember having a a fairly senior um, colleague say to me once, you know, 
and it really shocked me to be honest, uh, that the Adventist understanding, the great controversy vision is really something that uh, was about the 1880s and probably not relevant anymore. And, and I was uh, kind of shocked by that. Uh, I should say the individual who said that to me doesn't work for the church uh, anymore. Um, and we, we talked about it, and he just said, look, look, this vision is not possible anymore. It was a, a, a sort of time-specific understanding. And I, I think the last year, if anything, has uh, rammed home to us that the Great Controversy vision is a lot more relevant to today than, we, than many of us uh, like to think. It really, uh, the, the, the mixing of a virulent, uh, militant uh, form of uh, Christianity and uh, intolerance for minorities, that whole thing, uh, it all happened. <laughs> we just saw it happen. And that's not a political statement. That's just a statement of fact. If you get a chance, there's a great article in the uh, conservative uh, magazine by a conservative Christian detailing how Christianity was mixed in with the uh, with the violence uh, that led up to the riot at the Capitol. And it's really stunning. Reading the article, I just felt like I was reading pages out of the Great Controversy. <laughs> it's right there. It's incredible. So, yeah, maybe we were, we were lulled into complacency. Maybe it just seemed completely impossible uh, that anything like the Great Controversy vision could come true. Now... I think it's a lot less looking impossible. And uh, we're seeing a lot of things we never thought were possible. Not in our lifetime. I never expected some of the things that we've had uh, happen in the last, not even really since 9-11. It's been one thing after another uh, that has been very, very shocking and and, and disconcerting. Um, So I think that maybe many of us, and certainly myself included, we need to go back we need to study the prophecies again and really get a good grounding again in what the Adventist view of prophecy is and look at the world that we're living in and, and, and realize, you know, I'm not exactly sure how all the details are going to play out, but man, oh man, that vision and that understanding and the interpretation on the beast and everything else that doesn't look like a fantasy world anymore. That looks like the world that uh, (laughs) we're very close to living in. How should Seventh-day Adventists relate to politics? Well, Ellen White said interesting things about politics because, and and they seem on their face to be very uh, conflicting. She warned against getting involved in politics, but on the converse side of it, she said, in this favored land, all of us have a vote, and shouldn't that vote be used uh, to advance? Uh, I remember, I can't, don't have the exact term, but basically, shouldn't it be used to advance good things? <laughs> and this is when she was talking about the temperance movement. And she also said uh, that we're not doing the will of God if we sit quietly doing nothing to preserve liberty of conscience. And the early Adventists were very active. Obviously, we're active on uh, on the end of slavery as well, emancipation. These are big public issues, the most uh, controversial issues of her day. She said we should be involved. But on the other side, she said, don't be preoccupied with politics. 
And so I think that she uh, made a distinction between the general run-of-the-mill political issues and, you know, whether it's what standard our currency is on, those sorts of things, which was an issue in the church uh, back in her day, and moral issues that the church has a very distinct uh, uh, view on and, and something to give, like religious freedom, like racial equity, um, uh, like uh, protecting the vulnerable from the exploitation from the liquor and tobacco industries. And, of course, uh, these days it would also be uh, the narcotics uh, industries as well. And so I think Adventists should be engaged in the public square. That, that's our history. That's what Ellen White said we should do. It's what Daniel was. It's what Esther was. It's what Joseph was. It's what King David was, all about biblical heroes. Uh, but what we shouldn't do is sell our souls to political parties and sell our allegiance to political parties, but rather to keep our first primary allegiance to God and see everything through our allegiance to God and realize that politics is can be like a false religion that requires a, a doctrines and orthodoxy and, and a sort of bowing down to the uh, leadership in a, in, a, in a metaphorical sense. And we can't do that. As Christians, as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, we got to be our own people. we got to be our, true to our own conscience and our own faith and our own beliefs. But that doesn't mean we can't be engaged in, in, in political issues. And I, I should say just one other thing. Ellen White also said that uh, she's talking to young people, youth, have you dreams that you dare not express that one day you'll sit at the height of intellectual greatness, that you will uh, sit in legislative chambers and make the laws of the land. And then she went on and said, there's nothing wrong with these aspirations. Aim high and spare no effort to reach the mark. We should have Adventists who are legislators. We should have Adventists in the State Department and, and in, uh, you know, in our state governments and, and so forth. There's nothing wrong with that as long as we are very careful to put God first, country second, party third. And I see a lot of exactly the opposite. Where the party is number one, the country comes as distant second, and God, you know, he fits in around the cracks. It doesn't work. It's a disaster for us morally on an individual level, and it's not working very well for the country either. James, thank you so much for your time. It's a great honor to have you, and we'd love to have you back in the future to talk more, especially with your involvement in the United Nations but thank you so much for joining us. Hey, hey Peter, and you know, I just want to thank you and tip my hat to you. You know, I know that you're you're teaching in in uh, academy there, and I really admire uh, your dedication to providing a, a thorough, thoughtful, uh, engaging uh, education to our kids, and and an and education that that's not just simplistic, and 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 and. Uh, you know, full of little sound bites, but really helps people think through what some of the issues are and how we engage with them. And uh, the, the questions that you've asked me indicate that you understand we're talking about very complicated stuff in a very a nuanced milieu of, of ideas and concepts and trying to be a faithful Christian, a faithful Seventh-day Adventist Christian in all of this. Uh, it's not easy. It's simply not easy. I know because I live it, right? But um, 
but just because something isn't easy doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. And so I thank you so much for, for the, uh, for the hard work that you're putting in to prepare young people to do that in their personal and maybe some of their professional lives. And I pray that God blesses you in your, in your teaching ministry there. Praise the Lord. And thank you so much for the kind words. Definitely blessed by that encouragement. Uh, before we close, can you say a closing word of prayer for us? Oh, surely. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for loving us. And we thank you that you've given us the law of love uh, in our hearts to love others. Lord, you know that we live in a world that is very, very troubled. And that trouble is outside of our church, but it's also in our church because we we are society in many ways. And Lord, I ask you to give us wisdom, to give us humility, and most of all, to give us love. And even when people disagree with us, Let's love each other. And even when we find things that are complicated, frustrating, even angering, please give us your patience. Lord, please make us humble, just like you are humble. Help us to be kind in all that we do and all that we say. You know that we're very fallen, very imperfect, and we just ask you to help us to rely on your grace and Lord, please write your law right into our hearts, I pray. Amen. Amen. 